From beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts, this is Returns on Well-Being, the podcast that brings you the latest and best thinking from today's business and healthcare leaders. We share strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines and address two of their biggest concerns, the cost of healthcare coverage and the engagement of their workforce. To guide us on this quest, here's our host, Jim Purcell. Welcome to Returns on Wellbeing and thank you for joining us. I'm Jim Purcell. Today we'll be exploring workplace well-being, something which is quite different from today's workplace wellness. The words wellness and well-being may sound similar, but they are not. We will discuss the problems with today's workplace wellness programs and how employers can take some basic steps to boost employee health and well-being. Our guest today is Michael Samuelson. Michael is a healthcare advocate with a distinguished professional career as a successful entrepreneur, university professor, community organizer, and U.S. health policy advisor. Michael also was a colleague of mine as the CEO of the Rhode Island Blue Cross subsidiary, the Health and Wellness Institute. Michael's writings have been read by millions throughout the world and endorsed by medical organizations, leaders, and media personalities, including George H.W. Bush, Betty Ford, C. Everett Koop, and Larry King. Michael is a recipient of the Commander's Coin of Excellence from the U.S. Army Center for Health Promotion and Preventive Medicine. For over four decades, Michael lived, ate, and breathed wellness in the workplace and elsewhere. Michael has climbed some of the tallest mountains on five continents and is becoming a fine professional photographer. Michael, it's good to have you on this, my first podcast. Hey, thank you, Jim. It's my pleasure. Very good. Uh, Let's start off with corporate America today is spending over $8 billion a year on wellness. Uh, In your opinion, are they getting their money's worth? Oh, not even close, Jim. The concern is that often people think, oh, I just throw money at something. I can alleviate the problem or I can uh, disguise the problem. So there's been a lot of money thrown at it, but it's not been done in any kind of a strategic fashion. It's simply been done to check a box that says I've done something. What, in your opinion, are the steps that employers can take with their workplace wellness programs to turn this around? You know, I think one of the biggest problems is that people did this as a single item issue. So they would look around and say, well, smoking's not good, so let's write a policy and let's help our people quit smoking. And then they'd look around and they'd read or hear statistics about the impact of obesity on worksite performance, uh, bottom line of organizations, and they said, well, then let's put in a program like Weight Watchers at the workplace or something like that. Mm-hmm. Same thing with stress, same thing with so many issues that it came at it as a singular focus rather than a comprehensive well-being, a total individual, total corporate concern. So that is that is the number one I saw over the last four decades. Right. Um, again, they've also often just focused on the physical health. They're forgetting the critical issue of mental health, behavioral health, emotional well-being, which uh, certainly has an impact upon the total individual. There's no such thing as an isolated behavioral health issue. Anything that is today's behavioral health issue is certainly tomorrow's full person, physical uh, health issue. Um, You know I'm writing a book uh, which will be titled Returns on Well-Being, and I've shared with you 
My belief that employers must make this a top strategic priority, not just about wellness, but about well-being as the only way to achieve returns on investment. What's your take on that? Yeah, well, you know, let me go back to your first question, because actually that probably is issue number one. If you do not have a persistent, consistent, passionate CEO who feels this right to his or her bones, right to the marrow, mm-hmm. then it's not going to work. Everything starts with the person who sets the standards, sets the policies, rewards, punishes, uh, supports the entire organization. So without the CEO, nothing's going to happen. Now, having said that, it's also critically important that not just top management, not just the C-suite, but that mm-hmm. middle manager, the person who is responsible for getting the widgets out the door every quarter, he or she has to buy into us. Otherwise, they can find ways to sabotage the programs. Conversely, if they see the relationship between an individual's full well-being and their production needs, uh, then you see a lot of cooperation and you see everybody advancing forward. That makes sense. Uh, that, that middle and lower management level usually is most resistant to cultural changes or changes that impact their way of doing business, aren't they? Yeah, they are, and understandably so. I mean, they're being evaluated based upon um, certain measures that traditionally have nothing to do with well-being. But mm-hmm. once you peel back the onion skin and it's everything to do with well-being, I've seen studies that show that an individual's uh, well-being uh, correlates very highly with their production, with their performance reviews. In other words, I can actually trace, predict an individual's performance review based upon their individual well-being. Right. And if we change their performance review to have it substantially reflect the well-being of their direct reports, that might make a a difference, right? Yeah, I believe so. Absolutely. It's it's a win-win situation and you can do it by tracking their their health records by tracking their participation in programs by providing opportunities and then seeing who does participate in the different programs and having not just the individual be tied to some kind of uh, incentive but also their manager Mm -hmm. so that they are encouraged they're incentivized to get them engaged now we were talking a little bit about ceos uh if ceos are to lead uh, a well-being effort at their organization, do they have to be super fit and run marathons in your opinion? No, I think actually that can be counterproductive. Probably could. Uh, What they have to be is, yeah, they have to be an individual that recognizes, again, the tie-in, the synergy, if you Mm -hmm. will, of an individual being fit and important to the organization. Now, saying that, uh, it certainly helps. In fact, it's hypocritical if they don't in some fashion be seen to be striving toward uh, as uh, an optimum well-being for themselves. So they need to be human, uh, but they also have to be perceived as somebody who recognizes and, again, pursues their own personal well-being. Yeah. So a slightly pudgy CEO with slightly high blood pressure who publicly decides to do something about it might be the ideal leader, right? <laughs> yes, but this is not about you, Jim. <laughs> this is this is <laughs> this is indeed uh, about all all CEOs, uh, independent of size, shape, uh, and previous behaviors. It's it, the recognition that we all have incremental improvements that yep. we can pursue. 
Got it. Michael, um, in, in your various travels in your career, are you aware of many boards of directors that have held its CEO accountable for the well-being of employees? I hear a lot of rhetoric, Jim, around that issue. It makes for great talking points. To be honest with you, I have not seen it in full operation mm -hmm. within an organization. And if it doesn't start with the board, if it doesn't start with the chair of the board, if it then doesn't trickle down to top management, it's not going to happen. It needs to be built into the incentive plan. It needs to be built into the bonus plan. It needs to be measurable and not in a punitive sense, again, tying it to why is this good for you? Why is this good for the corporation? And recognizing, again, this beautiful synergy that what is good for you is good for the corporation and vice versa. Otherwise, if you simply drive the fact that this will increase the number of widgets and increase our profit margin, there is an understandable so what that comes on the part of the employees. When you tie that to a couple of things, one, it's the right thing to do. Two, I'm going to help you achieve whatever is your subjective well-being. And keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. I can't sit and dictate to you what is your well-being. I understand what is neutral. I understand what is harmful. However, only you can decide what is going to advance your personal well-being. And then I can provide an environment. And I guess that's the key is I need to, I have to. It is in my interest as a CEO to provide a culture that will um, encourage you to increase your well-being. Right. Um, you are a colleague of a fellow named Ron Getzel, I believe. Is that correct? It's a dear friend as well. I've known Ron right. for, gosh, 40 years. And, and uh, I believe you introduced me to him. I've read some of his articles, and he has a phrase that he has used that I am now using as well, and it, it refers to the programs that employers adopt uh, and parachute on employees without a culture, an underlying culture of well-being. He calls it random acts of well-being. Uh, does that resonate with you? Yeah, it does because, it, 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 remember, health, in order to advance anybody's well-being, has to be in context. So it has to be part, it has to be considerate of the gestalt, the, the whole individual, the whole organization. So by simply dropping these different programs without connected tissue, without context, they're often viewed as uh, either punitive or they're viewed as intrusive into my personal life. Mm -hmm. And again, that's counterproductive. Right. So, so health must be in context and it must be in my personal context. So how does it advance my time with my grandchildren? How does it advance the way I can play golf? How does it advance my interaction with my spouse? How does, how does eventually, does it interact with my overall daily way that I feel about myself, both physically and psychologically? Right. Um, you've written some books and one was about Mickey Mantle. What was that about? Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, that book took a couple years to write, and it basically dealt with um, how do we get men to understand that every aspect of their health contributes again to their overall well-being, and it puts it in context. So in that situation, being an old baseball player and a baseball fan, as I know you are as well, I brought that Mickey as a coach uh, to help men take a closer look and I did it, and we did it with the editor, by showing the mistakes, the errors that Mickey had made in his personal life, and what he could do over again. 
-hmm. So the whole idea is getting a coach is not a bad idea, not just for your abs, not just for how you can play tennis or whatever your sport may be, but how you can put context into your life, recognizing how it affects others. And this is not a weakness. This is a strength if we recognize the value, the importance of asking others who have gone down the path, not just the ideal path. In fact, that's probably not all that helpful, but those who have stumbled along the way so mm -hmm. they can point out the potholes, they can uh, give you suggestions, ideas from real life experience. Right. Yeah, I suspect the very best coaches and mentors are, are not perfect human beings, but people who have made mistakes and learned from them. There are a lot of sayings about that, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. I view life as a series of villages and roads. You go down the road, you stop by a village, you take notes, you offer what you can in terms of what you've learned. You get back on the road with your notes, you go down, you stop at the next village, you listen, you learn, you teach. And that's the whole process. That's right. that's a community. That's a collective. That's a sharing of information for overall well-being. Outstanding. Um, Michael, there's not so much now, but about a year ago, there was a lot of press and a lot of disagreement about the use of penalties and incentives with regard to workplace programs. Do you have any opinion on that? Tim, I think it goes back again to the whole issue of culture and context. So in order for an individual to recognize that what I am providing here as a culture is designed to enhance both uh, the individual as an employee, which means the organization benefits, as well as the individual, which means that he or she, their family, that they benefit. So if it's not presented that way, it is prevented as rewards for some and punishment for others. So rather than presenting it that way, uh, simply design the culture saying, here's the policy, here's the culture, this is the way that we live in the culture, and here are the measurements that we will use, and here are the rewards or the benefits associated with that. Mm -hmm. So always emphasizing the benefits, not the punitive aspect. Should an individual choose not to engage in well-established behaviors that advance corporate and individual well-being, then they have the right not to do that. But also they have to understand that the increase, the added benefits come with compliance around well-established ways of advancing both corporate and individual well-being. So we can neither make employees healthy, nor can we truly pay them to become healthy, right? Right. And what you can do is you can judge individuals based upon their performance. And if their performance is not uh, providing advancement for the organization, then the organization can proceed in mm -hmm. any way that is fit or is designed by their state or federal government. Right. right. So those things are just up to the individual. This is all providing a culture uh, which promotes well-being. Yeah. The holy grail here, I would suspect, is uh, long-term behavior change for the better. Uh, why is that so hard? Well, that's a good question. A lot of it has to do with habit formation. Mm -hmm. A lot of it has to do with fear of change. Yep. A lot of it has to do with providing an environment that enhances and encourages positive changes right. on the part of the individual. So once we get ingrained in particular behaviors, or once we have the notion that we're too old to change, I hear that a lot, by the way, these mm -hmm. days. It's somebody is uh, X number of years old, so don't expect change. Well, that is both naive and it's dangerous. Uh, change is on a continuum that never ends. So by providing opportunity for it, 
by reducing the fear associated with it, by giving individual freedom to establish whatever meets their, again, subjective well-being. And that's an important term to keep in mind. Uh, you will see incremental changes, but understand it takes a long time and it takes a lot of reinforcement for individuals to change. And just one more thing with this, Jim, mm -hmm. is that there is this notion that we are that we are intellectual, that we are rational beings who emote, and that's absolutely not the case. We are emotional beings with the capacity for rational behavior. So until you deal with my emotional well-being, you're not going to see rational, by your description, uh, behaviors within an organization. I can recall you telling me at one point that this is all about getting an individual to make a visceral personal connection between long-term behavior change and some deeply held personal goal. Is that the key? Yeah, absolutely. The process of change goes from intellectual to emotional to visceral. So intellectual means I have information. Emotional means I'm moved to action. But until the visceral, until it goes right into my belly, in terms of what I perceive as in my self-interest. And by the way, self-interest is not the same with being selfish. Mm -hmm. Selfish is a whole other issue. Self-interest is something that benefits everybody. So if you can help provide an opportunity, a trigger that strikes my self-interest, which means my viscera, my belly, my guts, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna intellectualize the process and I may have a wave of emotion, but it's not gonna be sustained. I, I hear you. Michael, I, I know you've climbed very tall mountains on five continents. What were you thinking? <laughs> you sound like my wife. What was I thinking to do those <laughs> things? <laughs> uh -huh. uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, one is just exploration. One is to, to find out uh, what is one's capacity uh, for change, by the way, and in, in terms of accomplishment. So metaphors are used as, I mean, mountains are used as metaphors for a lot of people. For me, I was very fortunate that I could actually go. The other part of it for me was I always traveled with a very established group. So selecting your guides is critical in life. Use that as a metaphor. I would never go on to Everest or go into Kilimanjaro or any of the mountains that I had the privilege of uh, being part of without the right team, without the right leadership, because it's team and leadership that provided me the opportunity to not only ascend mountains, but much more importantly, to come down to regain strength to pursue other mountains. So mountains were very important to me. I also did it as not somebody that had a resume. I did it with somebody who had a common interest with other people. And in the process of doing that, you leave your ego behind, you leave your press clippings behind, and you simply go off with other people that you realize without their camaraderie, without their support, without teamwork, you literally cannot survive the mission. So it became extremely important for me in terms of life lessons. Very good. Okay, Michael, thank you very much. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And that concludes our interview of Michael Samuelson. Please stay tuned as we continue to bring the best thinking to get workplaces to the goal of well-being that moves organizations toward increased success. I'm Jim Purcell, your host. Until then. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing. To subscribe to this podcast series, visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com, where you'll find resources to help organizational leaders achieve tangible returns on well-being.